Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Coriel, and Philippe de Lamatrac. And just in case you are wanting to know how to look those up, Gabrielle is G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N. That was probably the easiest one. And then Ina Coriel is A-I-N-A-E-C-H-O-I-R-E. I-E-L. And Philippe is P-H-I-L-I-P-P-E. So two P's on the end and one L, not two. De, D-E, La, L-A, and Matrak, M-A-T-R-A-Q-U-E. So those are how you spell those words. Let's get back to finding home because something big is going to happen in this episode. This chapter is a turning point in the whole story. So, I hope you're ready for it. This gets weird, and when I read it, it's going to be hard for me. I can't read italics in italics. You can't do verbal italics. So, it's going to be hard when flashback and reality, telepathy and not telepathy, telepathy mix together. I'm going to just read the words and hopefully it will be clear. Otherwise, I may kind of explain a little bit in the commentary in the coming chapters because they're going to get mixed. And really, the italics in the story, if you're reading along, will help. So... I don't remember how much italics is in chapter 8, but you might want to get on AO3. I would suggest that's the nicest place to read it. Look up Finding Home by Philippe de Lamatrac. Go to chapter 8, and we'll start reading. Star Trek Enterprise, Finding Home by Philippe de Lamatroc. Sequel to Alien Us, chapter 8. Dr. McCormick yawned. Quarterly reports were not her favorite part of the job. It was late. Quite late. Dinner was hours ago. She'd had something from the canteen sent up and ate at her desk. The rest of the evening had been reports from each department and then writing her report, bringing all the information together. She'd so much rather work directly with patients, even closer than she had with Reed. She'd liked the detective work of diagnostics particularly but she tolerated this interruption four times a year in return for overseeing and leading her team of fine physicians, nurses, and therapists. Another 15 minutes and she'd be done and ready to head home. She took another swig of her coffee and winced because it had gone cold. She heard footsteps running and getting closer. She looked up to see Mark, one of Dr. Varnus's nurses, arrive in her doorway. There's a situation, ma'am. McCormick came around her desk and followed Mark. She could hear the commotion before she saw the situation. You murdered her! You and your people! You butchered her like a piece of meat! It was an older man, paunchy, with an air of a man used to wielding authority, in an overbearing sort of way. A dark-haired, middle-aged woman stood a bit farther away. Dr. Varnus stood between the man and the recovery corridor. Mr. Reed, Varnus tried, raising her voice slightly. You mutilated my daughter's corpse, left us with little more than a husk to bury, and why? She had months left. You killed her, and for what? He wasn't worth killing her. Get Commander Charles Tucker III here ASAP, she whispered to Mark, and get security. Then she deliberately walked up behind the man. That is quite enough, she commanded. This is a hospital, and our patients need their rest. You! He rounded on her. You signed off on it. Killed my daughter. Your daughter chose to be an organ donor for her brother and others. He used the same commanding tone. She was compromised and you took advantage of her condition. Why don't you come with me to my office, she offered without softening her tone, and we can discuss this without disturbing any more patients. Security came at that moment. Sir, Serena interjected. I suggest you go with our CO or we'll remove you from these premises. James and Kim stood behind her. They made an imposing team. And that worked. 
The man, retired Admiral Stuart Reed, McCormick had surmised, stopped yelling. McCormick turned and started back for her office. She half hoped Reed and his wife chose to leave, but she didn't look back. She knew Serena and her men would get the Reeds to follow. She made it back to her desk and pulled a pad from her drawer just before the Reeds entered. She set her jaw and spread her arms as she leaned forward to splay her fingers on the desktop. Admiral Reed entered with his wife following. Serena took up the rear. Please sit, McCormick offered, only now softening her voice. She indicated the chairs in front of the, her desk. They sat, and Serena adopted a parade rest posture behind them. Your daughter's own physician found her competent to make the decision, McCormick informed them. She handed the pad to Mrs. Reed. The admiral snatched it from her. And she was fully cognitive when she sat right where you are, Mr. Reed, and volunteered to be her brother's donor. Admiral Reed, he spat back. Retired, McCormick reminded him. She was adamant that she did not want her brother to have to wait. Madeline Reed herself initiated the energy pulse that sent her into brain death. She chose this. I am sorry for your loss, but your son is alive because of her sacrifice. And her hand? he demanded. Who got her hand? Generally, the names of donors and recipients are kept confidential. The relationship between your daughter and your son made that impossible. But I'll not disclose any more. The hand, however, was amputated according to her will. What will? We haven't found her will. Her hand and the return of her body were the only obligations from her will then involved to this hospital, McCormick stated. Beyond that, we are not in the business of executing wills. However, the general custom is that those named in the will are contacted by the executor of said will. Now, if you don't mind, I have reports to finish. Lieutenant Brockmeyer will see you out. I'm not finished, he shouted, rising. Yes, you are, McCormick countered. And if I see or hear you in my halls again, I'll have you arrested for putting recovering patients at risk. She nodded to Serena. Mr. Reed scowled, but he got around the chair to leave. Mrs. Reed followed, but never said a word. It left McCormick to wonder if she shared her husband's sentiments or was too cowed by him to protest. McCormick called Trevon and asked him to return. If Lieutenant Reed had heard any of that, he was going to need help. This was the worst way for him to find out that his sister was his donor. After McCormick and security had left the corridors, Dr. Varnas and her nurses went door to door, reassuring patients and helping them get back to sleep. They had started where the commotion had started, and moved back toward the recovery wing. Kellen met her in the junction between the two wings, just as she left Sergeant Ipp's room. "'He's not in his room,' Kellen whispered. "'Lieutenant Reed?' Varnas asked for clarification. "'He can barely walk. Where would he go? You check the restroom?' Yes, doctor, Kellen replied. It's empty. Keep looking, Barnes told her. I'll let McCormick know. Kellen went one way and Varnus went the other. McCormick was back in her office. She was just turning off her computer, so she must have finished her reports. Varnus knocked on the doorframe. When McCormick saw her, she said, Lieutenant Reed isn't in his room. It's imperative we find him. McCormick stated. She came around the desk, and whoever finds him needs to approach him gently. Could he have heard them? Patients three doors down from him heard, Barnes replied. Thanks, Janice. Let's finish calming them and find him. Tripp walked back into Starfleet Medical at 2213. The lights were dimmed, and there was a whispered frenzy in the corridors as he approached Malcolm's room. Tripp went straight there, but Malcolm wasn't in the room. He checked the restroom, even under the bed. Mom always said when you looked everywhere something that's lost should be, you gotta start looking where it shouldn't be. He walked back to the hall and spotted Dr. McCormick. He wasn't sure why she was still here so late. What's going on? He whispered. Where's Malcolm? McCormick pursed her lips like she didn't like what she was about to say. We don't know. Tripp wasn't sure he heard that right. What do you mean you don't know? There was a disturbance this evening, she explained. Mr. and Mrs. Reed came, after hours, claiming they wanted to see their son. Dr. Varnus wasn't going to allow that. Mr. Reed started shouting some rather incorrect and very cruel things. Tripp felt his stomach drop. What kind of things? McCormick sighed. 
that we had murdered his daughter and mutilated her body to save his son, who he expressed wasn't worth it. Trip couldn't breathe. His sister? It felt like Lizzie had died all over again. She volunteered, Commander, McCormick said in her defense. She wanted to save her brother. I saw her, Tripp said. I talked to her. I had tea with her the night we arrived. She said she was sick, but she seemed fine. Brain tumor, she replied. Incurable. Tripp pushed the confusion aside. When were you planning on dropping that on him? There was no good time to do so, she held. It would have risked his health, but this is the absolute worst way for him to find out, and he's going to need a friend when we find him. Do you have any idea where he might have gone? He hasn't escaped the compound. We checked security sensors at the doors. Could they have taken him somehow? Tripp didn't want to think his parents were that evil, but why else was he so hard to find? McCormick shook her head. Not unless they had someone else working with them, but it would be on the sensors. Besides, security escorted them out. Tripp rubbed one hand through his hair and tried to think. Malcolm could barely cross the room. What about Travon? Can't he contact him telepathically? I've tried. Tripp spun around to see the Betazoid approach. He's not answering me. Then he remembered this morning. Malcolm was so much more relaxed at the park. But that would have been a very long walk for him. The courtyard? How could he manage that? But McCormick pulled out a communicator anyway. Serena scanned the courtyard. Tripp counted the seconds as they waited for a reply. One patient, male, near the pond. The pond? Tripp started running. Trevon was right beside him. He's aquaphobic, Tripp told him as they ran. He had recognized the voice shouting, and the words had cut him to his soul. Maddie was dead, and he wasn't worth it. Maddie was dead. That was why she hadn't come. The shouting continued. He stood, knocking the pad to the floor. He ignored it, couldn't hear it. The walls around him were stark. The bed across the room was a metal slab anchored to the wall. But they'd left the door open. He had to escape. He had to try. He caught the door frame, turned right. His legs felt sluggish, but he kept going, using the handrail in the hall for support. He stepped with his legs and pulled with his arms. The walls were closing in. He had to make it out. The pain in his chest nearly drove him to his knees. Maddie was dead. He pulled on the rail and rose again, aiming for the bright spot at the end of a, the collapsing tunnel he was in. He could barely breathe for the exertion and the pain. He had to get out. You mutilated her corpse, he heard again. This is your fault. You weren't worth the expense. Swim. You know how to swim. You cost me everything. It was like he was being cut open, but this time he could move. This time he could gasp. If he could just get away. The light, the tunnel's end. He pushed open the doors, stumbled out into the crisp night air. But it was hot to him, hot and dry under an oppressive sun. He kept going. He could see water ahead. By the time he reached the edge of the pond, he was crawling on his knuckles and his knees. The grass was cool and slightly damp, but in his mind it was sand, and it burnt his fingers, his legs. He had to get to the water. "'Come to me, Malcolm,' a woman's voice. "'Hoshi? Come closer. I can save you.' "'No, not Hoshi,' but he recognized her just the same. "'The air is hurting you. Come to me.' His fingers sank into the mud, and the water licked his wrists, seeped under the splints and into the bandages. He sat back and panted against the weight he felt, the hurt. "'We belong together, Malcolm,' the voice sang to him. It was quiet, sultry, alluring. "'I could have saved you from the bullies, from the orcs, from your father. Come to me, and I will take away all that pain.' He couldn't feel the water on his knees, the mud on his shins as he knelt by the pond. He couldn't think. He could only feel the pain, hear the voice, in the very deepest part of himself, sinking him into the ground. It hurt more than anything T-Rex or Sauron had done, and he couldn't make it stop. She said she could. Trip 
Tripp saw him kneeling by the pond. His white pajamas stood out starkly against the dark of the grass. Tripp ran harder until he reached him, and he slid the last few feet so that he stopped at Malcolm's level. Malcolm? Malcolm didn't turn to him. He had a dazed look on his face. Tears were falling down his cheeks, and he was breathing heavy. Tripp ignored the mud on his pant legs as best he could. It was cold and wet. He'd never seen Malcolm like this. Tripp waved Trevon away for now. Others had come, too. Tripp kept all his focus on Malcolm. He put a hand on Malcolm's shoulder and moved closer. Malcolm's head turned, and in the wan light, he looked half dead. Oh, she will understand, he breathed. No! The realization slammed into him. Malcolm would drown himself to stop the pain. Tripp took both of his shoulders and turned him to face him better. No, Malcolm, he argued. She won't. He took Malcolm's face in his hands. If you die, she will die. She'll find a way, just like she did in Bhutanis. Then he pulled Malcolm to him and held him. You can survive this, Malcolm. Tripp stood, lifting Malcolm with him, and stepped away from the water. Malcolm was dead weight, so they only got a few feet before they dropped again. Tripp just held him. It felt like hours before Malcolm moved at all. He dropped his head to Tripp's shoulder and let out a weak sob. Tripp held him tighter. I know it hurts, Malcolm, he whispered in his ear. Tears welled up in his own eyes. I know how much it hurts. You tried to help me through it, and I pushed you away. Let me help you through it. Trevon came closer. He was pushing a wheelchair. Another doctor stood off to the side. Tripp waved Trevon over, and between them they lifted Malcolm and poured him into the chair. He was limp again, like a doll, and he just stared at the pond. Tripp's mind whirled. Malcolm couldn't stay here. Not like he was, not with the courtyard within reach. They would have to restrain him. That would make things worse. He had to get Malcolm out of here. He had to take him home. He looked to Trevon. Stay with him. Move him back, under a tree, away from the pond. Don't leave his side. I won't, Trevon promised. Tripp held Malcolm's shoulders. I'm going to go get your stuff. I'll be right back. Then he ran, past the doctor, the gawking nurses and orderlies and security. He ran through the doors and down the corridors, all the way to Malcolm's room. He fished the bag from under the bed and put the pad he'd left with Malcolm in it. He found another on the floor and turned it on. It was a letter, a love letter, to Hoshi. He turned it off and tucked it into the bag. Where will you take him? McCormick was there. He can't stay here. They know where he is. Do you think they would intentionally hurt him? They already have hurt him, Tripp countered. He was going to drown himself in that pond. It hasn't been a week since surgery. He needs medical care, she argued. North Mississippi Medical Center in Tupelo, real close to my parents' place. You can coordinate his care with them, but I'm taking him home. Tripp looked around the room for anything else. My brother-in-law is a home health nurse. He's between assignments. He checked the bathroom and found some grooming implements. Commander, she started, but Tripp cut her off. He couldn't let her override him. He was doing better. Healing. Talking. He talked to Trevon. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get Malcolm Reed to talk about himself? It took a near-death experience with him for me. The two of us in a disabled shuttle, light years away from Enterprise, with not enough oxygen and a whole bottle of bourbon. He can't stay here. She nodded. I'll need to get his files transferred, and I'll need the address. He had everything. It was time to go. Get him and meet me in the courtyard. You might want to clear it of unnecessary people, because I'm putting my flitter down right in the middle of it. She nodded, and they left the room together. She went toward her office, and he went toward the exit. As he neared the flitter, a woman stepped out from the shadows. She was carrying what looked like a silver briefcase. Commander Tucker. She had a British accent like Malcolm and Madeline. I'm a little busy right now, he told her. You work with Lieutenant Malcolm Reed? She asked, stepping closer. Tripp stopped and turned to face her. Who are you? My name is Sarah Farmer. His sister Madeline worked for my firm. She asked me to be the executor of her will. I need to see Malcolm Reed. I have to give him this. She held up the case. I can take it to him, Tripp offered, softening his tone. She shook her head. I have to transfer it directly to him. Tripp sighed. Well, get in then, but when we get there, make it quick and I'll do the talking. He's not really in a good place right now. I imagine not, she said, stepping into the flitter. I saw Mr. and Mrs. Reed storm out of there a while ago. I saw him at the funeral, too. He's turned his grief into a furious anger.
Tripp got in, sat in the pilot seat, and fired up the engine. You know them? She sat in the passenger seat. No, I knew Madeline. But it was easy to pick them out for at the service. I tried to get here before them. The flitter lifted from the ground. Tripp took it over the hospital. He used the comm system to call home, audio only. Tripp? His mom. I'm bringing him back with me, Tripp told her. I understand. We'll be ready. He closed the channel. The courtyard was below them. He lowered the flitter and turned off the engine. Miss Farmer put a hand on his arm to stop him from getting up. She loved her brother very much. I got that much just from talking with her. She was very proud of him. She recorded a journal after she got sick. It's in this case. He should watch it, but maybe he should watch the last entry first. She had been depressed about her illness. Her death seemed like a waste of a young and talented life. Then she heard her brother needed a heart. She was happy the last time I saw her. her. She felt her death would have meaning because she could save him. He needs to hear that, I should think, from her. That matched with what McCormick had said about Madeline volunteering. Tripp got up and opened the door. Trevon had wheeled Malcolm to the nearest tree and turned him away from the pond. Malcolm didn't try to leave the chair. He hadn't moved at all. Trevon waited for Dr. Varnus to finish her scan. Then he knelt on one knee in front of the chair. Malcolm, he said, talking very gently, please talk to me. I'm not Sam. Trevon was startled, but Malcolm's lips hadn't moved. I'm Faramir. Trevon felt a great weight on his chest, and he realized it was from Malcolm's mind, so he steeled himself, using his training to block the wave of sadness that poured from the man in the chair. He focused on the words, the names, Sam and Faramir. Sam had been his code name. Why Faramir? Less favored son of Denethor, son of Gondor. Favored son Boromir had died. Faramir had asked his father if he wished their places had been reversed, if he had died instead of Boromir. Denethor said he did wish it. That fit the situation. Fortunately, he was a fast reader. He'd finished the third book just this evening. Faramir outlived Denethor, he communicated back to Malcolm. Aragorn saved him from the Black Breath, and he won the heart of Eowyn, just as you won the heart of Hoshisato. But Malcolm said no more, and Trevon couldn't be certain he had heard. The dark, pounding melody had drowned out the descant, and Hoshi wasn't here to reinstate it. Tripp found Trevon and Malcolm and motioned for Ms. Farmer to follow. Trevon stood, and Tripp knelt in his place in front of his friend. This woman needs to give you something, he told Malcolm. Something from Madeline. Ms. Farmer came closer. There was a small device attached to her case. She put the case on the arm of the chair and lifted the device. She pressed her thumb to it. Now his, she whispered. Tripp had to help Malcolm put his thumb on it. It beeped and the device came away. She put the case on the ground next to the chair, then nodded and backed away. Tripp looked to Trevon. Can you put that in the flitter? Trevon nodded. Yes, and I'll help you get him in. He picked up the case and walked toward the vehicle. Tripp looked at Malcolm and was sorry for the time he'd called him the Grim Reaper. Something very wrong in the Reed family had made Malcolm the way he was. Dr. McCormick arrived with a couple pads as Tripp pushed Malcolm toward the flitter. I've contacted the med center. I'll coordinate with Dr. Perez. She'll need to see Malcolm as soon as she's able. They reached the flitter. Trevon was inside, and they both worked to move Malcolm from the chair to the passenger seat. Trevon folded the empty chair and tucked it into the back. Then he moved forward and whispered into Tripp's ear, I need to keep working with him. You may be the only one who can. Tripp agreed, touching his temple. McCormick stuck her head in after Trevon stepped out. First one is instructions for your brother-in-law. He took the pad she handed him and stowed it in Malcolm's bag with the others. Second is for you. I need the address. Tripp took it and wrote his parents' address before handing it back. Trevon's going to need that, too. He's assigned here. Tripp took a breath and knew he was about to betray a confidence. But it had to be Trevon. Tripp leaned in close and whispered in her ear. Malcolm is a telepath. He needs Trevon. It took her a beat, but her eyes went wide. I'll make it happen. Then she handed him a blanket. Keep him warm. She leaned back out and stepped away. Tripp closed the door, then tucked the blanket around Malcolm. Malcolm didn't react. He looked so lost. Tripp sat down and lifted the flitter from the ground. 
We're going home, Malcolm. Trevon stood beside Dr. McCormick and watched the flitter take off. Jiren didn't break him, he told her with his mind. His parents shattered him. He's a telepath, she answered, replying in kind. How is that even possible? We didn't get that far, but it happened there, in Jiren. No one else should know. He's been studied enough. He's been hurt enough, she agreed. Then she spoke aloud. I'll get you out there as soon as possible. Then they both turned and walked back into the hospital. Well, I think now you see why there is a turning point in this story. Malcolm was doing better. He was talking to the therapist. It was, he was getting healthier. And then his parents showed up. And two things hit him the most. Maddie's dead, and I'm not worth it. And if you noticed, when we were in his scene, when it was his head and his father yelled, it wasn't the same thing he was yelling in the hall. That is because it's more in Malcolm's head. Um, this is just the start of how it's going to be hard to um, read what you'll see in in italics in the story. There wasn't really much of that in that scene, but he was mixing the present, the hospital with the lab, the courtyard, cool night with the desert, hot sun, the cold of the water with the heat of the the burning sand and then there was the voice in the water now when you read last full measure those pages you're not going to read that voice i've kind of added that voice i don't remember if we ever had that voice in alien us when he was in the tub we may have but i decided it was something his there's no actual lady in the water <laughs> that's again his mind it does say in that book that he got it in his head that the air was in his lungs what was is what was hurting him so he blew it out but what if his mind was creating this female sultry inviting women woman's voice to tell him the air was hurting and she can make it go away let it out and that's where that came from um I think we will hear from her again in this story, um, whether it's in real time or I think it's more in a flashback. But um, as therapy goes on, there will be difficulty in expressing the italics and the when it's in italics and when it's not, when it's a flashback and when it's not and when it's um, what he's imagining now it's it's his mind is going to be trippy uh to <laughs> to make it simple very trippy and we just got the start of it right here in chapter eight it's gonna get serious in chapter nine um It's probably the hardest mental story I've ever done. Um, I put Bashir through some, some stuff, man. <laughs> I put other characters through some stuff. But this almost, it's a mental block he's lost in time. And it will become more clear what is going on with him in the next chapter when Trevon gets there. But <laughs> there we are. Chapter 8. Um, I tend to go for the trauma. I tend to go for the dark story. Not so dark that you get depressed and all that. <laughs> Valerie, she rides dark. The Exile was one story that was not quite as dark, <laughs> and that spawned the doctor in me, which she gave me permission to write. Um, 
but I tend to have an up at the end of my stories. <laughs> but I've taken Malcolm way on down. And he's got so many traumas that they're going to bleed into each other. And it's going to be, it's going to be trippy. And I hope that I can convey it audibly as well as I did in text. So in HTML, um, whew, chapter nine is going to be something. Chapter eight was something. And it's not the last we've heard of Stuart and Mary Reed. So just so you know, but, uh, I hope I didn't hurt your ears with the Mr. Reed yelling. I thought it was important to act it out and to yell, um, as he was. So man, um, this is kind of what I knew would happen in the story. It just took us eight chapters to get here. But the eight chapters are important to build it up to get to this point. To have Malcolm doing well and then down. And it's just way down. He's trip. Trevon noticed that deeper hurt. He kind of guessed that it was there earlier, you know, in the story and the reeds have just taken that wound and ripped it up, ripped it open, adding in the death of his sister and he wasn't worth it. Malcolm in the show had mentioned that he wasn't very close to his family, that he didn't go to the Navy and that his father wasn't happy about that. We saw how his parents felt, but in the later episodes, we also saw him kind of hoping that his father would be proud of him, but it never, we never got to see that it happened. So I'm taking a dark path with the reeds and I hope that you'll go with me on that path so we can come through at the end. This story is 17 chapters long with an epilogue as well. So I think the epilogue is chapter 17. Um, so we are about the halfway point right now. And that halfway point is the breaking point. Notice in his letters that he wrote to Hoshi in the last chapter, we're kind of upbeat. He was doing well, he's healing well, and one day he's going to sweep her off her feet. And now this has happened. So he was going to drown himself in a pond. He's aquaphobic. That is big. Um, and if perchance that uh, triggers you by any chance because you might feel like suicide is an option, um, please get help. There's suicide hotlines out there. Um, I've been there when I was a teenager. I've been almost there as an adult. I was once so depressed around 2010 that I felt sorry for babies being born because they're just going to die. So what's the point? That's kind of the best I can describe just how low I had gone. But I did talk to my doctor and I got on some antidepressants. And while they didn't change the situation that had made me depressed, they made me better able to cope with it. Um, there is help. So please don't give in to that temptation to do it. Also, it's been said it's a very permanent solution to a temporary problem. 
the times that I wanted to commit suicide or were so very seriously depressed were temporary. They didn't feel that way at the time because it takes years to grow up and be out of your parents' house, for instance. Or in 2010, we adopted our kids and it's kind of like postpartum depression, but it's post-adoption depression. And our kids had serious mental problems and it was bad. And we got them at eight and nine and that's a long way to 18. Fortunately, we didn't have to wait till 18 for most of the, the son who is very violent. We did have to wait till almost 18 for almost 17 actually for the daughter, but they are now adults and they've been out of our home since 2017 and 2014, 2014 and 2017 or 2015, anyway, for years, and I have been in therapy for that, and I have, I'm a lot better now. I am happy with my life. I'm happy with my life and my cats and my work situation, which <laughs> is that I feel like I'm semi-retired. Um, I drive Uber part-time, and I study to be a proofreader, trying to get back into that so I can get it done and get certified so I can put my services out there. Um, if you are a fanfic writer, generally you can't, well, not generally, you can't earn profit. So most fanficers do not want to pay a person to do their proofreading, but some of some do. Maybe you'd like to hire me <laughs> once I'm certified to proofread your story. But if you have a blog, that or something like that that you want um if you know someone who has a publication to put out but they need a proofreader that's what i'll be doing and hopefully between those two things i don't have to get a monday through friday job anymore so and with my husband's monday through friday job we can we can handle it we can we can survive we can thrive <laughs> we're thriving right now so as long as we can continue to do that i'm like I'm glad I don't have to get up and go to a job. I'm a night person. I'd so much rather wait till 4 a.m. and stay up till 4 a.m. and wake up at noon. That's the way I roll. <laughs> so I'm in a good place. In 2010, it didn't seem like this place could ever happen. That's the way these things are. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. Looking back, I can see that, yes, I made it. <laughs> you know? In 2010, I was so completely depressed that I could not see this possibility. It's hard to see that in the time of depression. That's why a counselor or, you know, a therapist can help you get through it. Or, as I did, an antidepressant. So I told my doctor once, what is the point of a pill if the situation is causing the depression? A pill won't fix the situation. And she said, no, but the situation can cause a chemical reaction in you. And the pill can work on the chemical reaction in you. And so I took the pill. And it did change. One thing with my depression, I couldn't handle the money. I couldn't look at the money. I didn't want to pay bills. I didn't want to look at the bank. It was just depressing. I didn't want to touch it. And so I let my husband do that for two years. And he tanked our credit rating. He paid some bills twice and others not. He didn't keep a budget and it was bad. So I get on the antidepressants. And one thing I was able to do, a better cope, is I took back the money. And now we paid off our consumer debt October 2021 or two, um, we have an over 800 credit rating. Um, we we're doing good. We don't miss payments. We don't pay them twice. That happens occasionally, but you know, I, mostly I keep my budget in quick in quick in. Well, I I can't I. I record all my transactions in Quicken, but I keep a budget in Excel. And 
all the bill pays in there. I got charts and all kinds of stuff. I got that analytical mind that works on the budget and it works. Even though my husband has the accounting degree, it's kind of ironic that I'm the better family budgeter. So I keep track of the finances and we are in a good place. We don't have the stress of the kids' problems. We just have cats which can sometimes be annoying, but most of the time they are so utterly cute and funny and <laughs> lovey that uh, you overlook all those things. We have four cats. Presently, we have Poodle is our oldest. We have Vinya, or Vinny for short. He is the biggest. We have Eeny, who, yes, did have siblings named Meenie, Miney, and Moe, but we kept Eeny. He thinks he's a number herbivore and likes to eat grass. And then we have Rolf. And Rolf is slightly defective in that he keeps his tail down and to the right, just hanging down when he's just walking around. <laughs> he doesn't put it up like a happy cat. The thing is, he can put his tail up. We occasionally see it, but most of the time he just hangs it down. Problem is, when he gets in the cat box, sometimes he leaves that tail down. He's long-haired, and if things are runny, you can see the problem. Things get caught in his tail feathers, you know? <laughs> and then we have to trim his tail feathers. You cannot teach a cat to put his tail up in the cat box. It's, if he hasn't learned it as a kitten, he's not going to learn it, so... Yeah, I got two cats that are slightly defective in that. One's an herbivore, one's got the tail thing. Vinny is just nearly 12 pounds of love bug. I, I say that he assaults us for love. Yeah, I'll be sitting in my chair here looking at my phone and suddenly, whoosh, there's 12 pounds of cat on my chest. <laughs> and he wants to snuggle with me and get in my hair and knock my glasses off my face. <laughs> it's very sweet, but it's very sudden at the same time. And then he'll be there for like 10 minutes. He'll jump into our arms for snuggles. He'll get a certain look in his face and body language, like he's on the counter, and, or he shouldn't be on the counter. He's on the table and you're walking by and he's just like, I'm gonna jump, I need my lovies. And so you're like, Okay, come on. <laughs> he jumps up into your arms. <laughs> Poodle is cantankerous um, when it comes to pills or flea medication or getting into a carrier being picked up. Whew, he's not one we want to do that with. <laughs> but he's 13 now, so it's going to happen more um, that he'll need to go to the vet. He may need at some point medications, and I'm just hoping they're liquid because it's a little easier to take that syringe and just open his mouth slightly, squirt it, and be done. <laughs> because anything else is risking pain. We do not believe in declawing. Declawing is actually removing the last knuckle of their paws, of each of their fingers, and that is awful. So all of ours have their, all their weapons, and Poodle knows how to use them, So, and he will use them. So otherwise, though... All right, so anyway, all of that was just to you know show that there was light at the end of my tunnel, and often there is light at the end of everyone's tunnel. It's just hard to see from where we are deep in the depression, deep in... The suicidal thoughts so get help talk to a friend who won't give you too much advice who's a good listener um, talk to a, a therapist there's um, better help there's telehealth there's I'm I don't know what it is but there is a suicide prevention number um, talk to your doctor you know get help so you can cope until you reach that end of the tunnel, okay? There's very little in this world that is 
so terrible we should just give in. I do have in Alien Us Hoshi discussing suicide early on when they broke the television because they had glass available. And she does attempt to commit suicide when Malcolm says goodbye to her at the end of the story. That would be a circumstance. If you were <laughs> crash landed on an alien planet and you have no hope of rescue and they're doing what those scientists were doing to them, there's no hope. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no anything. You're going to be a lab rat. You're going to be a science project. You're going to be a zoo animal till you die. That was the rationale. So, um, yeah, that's pretty extreme. There is a lot of suffering in this world. But if you can find one little corner of it where you can find happiness, it makes all the difference. Some of us have broken families. My family was very dysfunctional and I've had to cut some of them out of my life. Find a found family. The bonds can be even stronger. And this is what Trip is offering Malcolm by saying he's going to take him home. And that is why this story is called Finding Home. And it stems from this idea that Hoshi had, don't leave him where he cannot heal. If Malcolm was going to be sent home to Malaysia, he wouldn't heal with his parents. I um, originally thought of scenes, the magic sent scenes of that, where he was sent home, his parents made him even climb the stairs to his room. They gave him no help. They, you know, and Tripp found Malcolm in that situation. And he was just tanking. I think this is better. Sometimes that happens. The six years gave me different iterations of how this was going to happen, but it was always going to be Trip not leaving him in a place that he can't heal. And like I said, it wouldn't start. I couldn't start it. I couldn't find the beginning that led to those other ideas, but then the idea changed to this one and Madeline giving her heart to him and it just changed everything and it all came together and once I found the beginning that first journal entry I could write it and I knew where it was going Malcolm can't see a light at the end of the tunnel right now all he has is pain so it's going to take Trip and his family and Trevon. It's going to take, he needs help. And these are the people that are going to help. There is light at the end of the tunnel for Malcolm, but he doesn't see it yet. So there we are. Oh, and another thing I wanted to mention, because it came up in the com comments on the end of chapter eight, McCormick is not a uh, telepath. <laughs> Travon speaks to her telepathically. And because he's got that connection pointed at her, he can hear her back. So the telepathy is from him. And being a Beta Z, I think that works because Loaxana Troy was able to talk to Picard and someone else telepathically. Um, Deanna Troy is not a telepath. 
she was only half Beta Z and she was an empath, but her mother and she can speak telepathically. So I think that mainly comes from the mother. So the telepathic Beta Z can speak telepathically, have a conversation with somebody who is not. So when McCormick responds in kind, that's banking on Travon's telepathy until she speaks aloud. So it's just, he's the conduit. And that's kind of how I de uh, dealt with the whole Hoshi and Malcolm thing is that Malcolm's the conduit. When she had, I can't remember the telepath's name, one of the episodes in season three of Enterprise, she's contacted by a telepath and he was able to converse with her, even though she's not a telepath. He was able to make her see places like she was on Enterprise then suddenly it looks like she's somewhere else she was able to see a, a vision of him as a human though he's not he looks very different in real life he was able to project that so he was able to in a sense change her perception of reality so he was a very different telepath from the Betazoids so yeah try not to be confused there McCormick is not a telepath. She's a human. Travon was using his telepathy to converse with her. Okay. I hope that you enjoyed chapter eight. Hope that you are ready to jump into the abyss of chapter nine tomorrow. It's going to be, it's going to be trippy, but, um, I think it's going to be good. It's where the story really, you know, the S, the S hit the pan, hit the fan. Um, one of my commenters on the early thing, on the earlier chapters was like, I'm afraid the S is going to hit the fan. And I'm like, oh, you hit that on the head. <laughs> yes, it will. And it did in chapter eight. So this is broken open the earlier trauma that Reed suffered and it's going to make some things a lot worse and so he is an interesting character to read from the, or to write from this point on and I hope I can convey it all properly audibly in this podcast as we move on all right if you'd like to write me you know, if you need to reach out to me and maybe say something about why you're feeling down and, you know, go ahead. Um, I get it. You know, inhildy at gmail.com. I used to give out all three email addresses, but it's just easier to give out one. And since all my AO3 emails just come to inhildy at gmail.com, uh, that works. So inhildy at gmail.com and you can toot me on Mastodon, not Twitter because I'm not there anymore, at inhildy. And inhildy again is spelled I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. See you tomorrow.